I've never slept very well. Even as a kid, I tossed and turned this way and that, which makes waking up and getting out of bed that much more difficult. Anybody like me? Rarely am I rested and ready to take on the day. So I cling to those cozy covers. Just five more minutes, which usually turns out to be 10 or 15. On Sunday mornings, I set two alarms. And by chance, this morning, I woke up a minute before it went off. Now, why is it, excuse me, that's why through the years, when some of you have apologized to me for nodding off during the sermon, I always say, no problem, it's a day of rest. (laughs) If you can get shut-eye in one of those pews, more power to you. In her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, Tish Harrison Warren can relate. She writes, my body is greedy for sleep. But it's not just sleep. I'm greedy for that in-between place, the place of liminal consciousness, where I'm cozy, not quite alert to the demands that await me through the day. I don't want to face the warring, the big and the small that lies ahead of me. I want to stay in the womb of my covers a little bit longer. What an image to remain within the womb of our covers. If you're like me and Tish Harrison Warren, Jesus has a word for us this morning, a word about our sleep, about our slumber. You see, through our series, Letters to the Church, we've engaged the risen Jesus' words to the churches in the ancient world with eager expectation that his words to them would also be a word to us. We've seen how the church in Ephesus was known for their hard work and their perseverance. The church in Smyrna struggled with afflictions and with poverty. The church in Pergamum lived where Satan had his throne. And the church in Thyatira had love and faith, service and perseverance. Now this morning we look at the church in Thyatira. Like Excuse me, we look at the church in Sardis, but like Thyatira, the church in Sardis was intimately interconnected with the garment industry. They too prepared purple cloth that was luxuriously lavished upon and featured in lifestyles of the rich and famous. Now this was aided by their geographical location. They were right in the middle of five other cities, right in the middle of Thyatira and Pergamum, of Smyrna, of Philadelphia, and Fergia, who's also a member of the Black Eyed Peas, if you follow that band. (laughs) Is that right, Fergie? Yeah? Yeah. But Sardis became wealthy not only because of their exports to other towns. What flowed into Sardis made them most wealthy Most lucrative, the the Pactolus River ran right through the middle of town, and in that river was pure gold. Such gold made Sardis' king Cretius so wealthy, it prompted the still-used phrase, as rich as Cretius. See, the town was situated 1,500 feet above a valley, making it difficult, even dangerous, for others to attack. And to top it all off, Sardis was home to the Greek temple to Artemis, thought to bring new life to the dead. Jesus says this to the church in Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. 
what Tish Harrison Warren illustrates as a womb, Jesus sees as a tomb. That temple to Artemis who brings new life, it's not helping. See, Jesus sees this distinction, this difference between their reputation and their reality. Their reputation of being alive. Their reality of being spiritually dead. It's not difficult to imagine. A church with power in the community, with money in the offering plate, larger-than-life personalities on stage, only the best music, only the most energetic kids' ministry, a church that everyone else looks up to, in this case, high up on the hill, those other five towns actually look to them quite literally. And if you've already engaged this week's study guide, you've already seen that Jesus uses these short staccato phrases to get their attention, to interrupt the cycle of their sleep like an alarm clock. Jesus uses five different commands. First, he says, wake up. Open your eyes. Pull back the covers. Quit living the lie by relying on your reputation instead of reality. Strengthen, or it could also be translated, nurture what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished, incomplete in the sight of God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. Notice there's no new thing to learn, no new thing to engage. They know what they've been called to, to remember what they've received and to repent. To turn around, to make a U-turn, or as Apple computers would put it, think differently. Perhaps you've heard the story of a church looking for a pastor. After a few candidates were vetted and interviewed, one candidate preached and they wowed the church. It was proclaimed, this is our pastor. And so the votes were cast and it was unanimous. On his very first Sunday, the new pastor walked to the pulpit, opened the Bible, preached a powerful sermon. It was biblically sound and theologically accurate, applicable to the congregation's everyday life. The people in the pews, they nudged each other. They said, this is just who we needed. On the second Sunday, the pastor walked to the pulpit and opened the Bible, preached a powerful sermon. It was theologically accurate, biblically sound. It was applicable to the congregation's everyday life. The only problem, it was the same sermon from the week before. (laughs) Now, that was a little strange, but the congregation didn't mind. Some people were away the previous week. And even those who were there, they remarked about how Scripture has got such depth to it, such richness to it, and, and, and they learned something new, even in the second hearing of the sermon. Third Sunday pastor walked into the pulpit. He read the same passage and preached the same sermon. And while the congregation was confident that this man was a pastor God had called to their church, they were also concerned. And so a few members approached the elders. And then the elders approached the pastor. He invited them into his office and said, what can I do for you? They answered, well, we're a bit concerned that you keep preaching the same sermon every Sunday. And the pastor simply nodded his head. So they continued, our question is, do you have another sermon? (laughs) The preacher took off his glasses and loosened his tie. He folded his arms and he responded, I do have another sermon, but this church hasn't obeyed the first one yet. (laughs) I'm not sure how much longer he was their pastor. (laughs) And yet, 
That's what Jesus tells the church in Sardis. You don't need a new message. You don't need another sermon. You don't need to learn something new. Remember what you've already received and repent. You think you're living your best life, but Artemis is not helping you. You are asleep in the womb, or worse yet, the tomb. You're under the cozy covers, comfortable with all your cash, high above, looking down on the valley floor, looking down on all those other towns, convinced that you are safe and secure. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Again, Jesus is telling them a story that they already know. This is not a new teaching. Um, Let me explain. Twice, Sardis, though high up on that hill, had been attacked by outside forces, who very cautiously and carefully climbed up those mountains. The first time was in 549 B.C. The town had been left completely unguarded, resting on their laurels that they were so high up that they were safe and secure. So they learned from that lesson. And 300 years later, they stationed guards at the top of that hill in 214 B.C. The only problem, this is true, the guards had fallen asleep. So when Jesus uses this metaphor of waking up, of being spiritually asleep and under the covers, he's telling them a story that they already know. It's no mistake Earlier, when Jesus says to hold fast what they've received, it could also be translated to guard it, to better guard what they've already received, to better guard what they already have. He continues, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot the name of that person out of the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father God, your word goes out. It is embodied by your Son, our Savior Jesus, the living word. It has been written in the scriptures, your written word, and now would you allow us to hear the preached word. Father, where my words fall short, as they always will, may that fall away like chaff, but may the wheat remain, that your people would hear the good news of the gospel anew this day that we would be challenged where we need to be challenged and comforted where we need to be comforted, that we would be and even more so become your people because we've been together. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This Tuesday, Cassie and I will celebrate 14 years of marriage. I think I've got some pictures here. Yeah, yeah. As you can tell, it was just a terrible setting to get married. (laughs) Look at the bottom left. My Uncle Bob is so over it. Can you tell? (laughs) He's like, I'm not even looking, whatever. 
14 years. We've learned a lot about ourselves in that time. We're celebrating by me going to a session meeting Tuesday night. <laughs> it's going to be great. <laughs> we've learned a lot about ourselves in 14 years. And one of the things that we've learned, and this is true, sometimes I sleepwalk. Now, perhaps I've done it my entire adult life. I don't know. I only learned about it once I shared a bed with my wife, who would wake when I started walking around. One night, Cassie awoke to find me looking through the clothes in the closet. <laughs> Curtis, she called out, what are you doing? And though I don't remember a thing, she tells me that I turned around, looked her right in the eye and said, does it look like I know what I'm doing? <laughs> To which she very sweetly responded, no, it doesn't. Why don't you come back to bed? <laughs> and so I sheepishly sauntered over and climbed back in bed and went back to sleep. So now you know two things about me. One, that I sleepwalk. And two, apparently I have a lot of attitude when I sleepwalk. <laughs> now, to the church in Sardis, Jesus can clearly see what they're doing. They think they're living their best life with wealth and well-being, with safety and security, maybe even a little bit of arrogance and attitude, like me in the middle of the night looking through the closet. So Jesus reminds them, hey, you've fallen to outside forces before, and I can visit you the same. How good it is to know that we can hide under the cozy covers of God's comfort, right? How good it is to know that God's presence and his power is always with us. That we don't have to strive for our salvation. That it is God's gracious gift. How good it is to know that when we wake in the morning, whether quickly or slowly, in that very moment, we are recipients of God's grace and God's goodness. That we don't have to get dressed up in it or earn it in any way. That he loves us right then and there in the womb of our covers even with our messy hair and bad breath. If we stole the covers from our spouse during sleep, they might not love us very much at that moment, but God still does. What good news that is, isn't it? I know some Christians have a practice of making the sign of the cross the moment they wake up as a reminder that even before they get out of bed, this physical reminder, we have been chosen by God before we could do anything for him before we could accomplish anything in our day or try to earn the salvation that God has so graciously given us, a reminder, no, a recollection of our baptism that God has clothed us in Christ while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of God, while we were still asleep in the womb or worse yet, the tomb. But though we start our days knowing God's concern and care and comfort, Jesus sees that womb as a potential tomb. Like when Lazarus had died for four days and Jesus takes his time to get there to prove the point that he is the Lord, the giver of life, that he is the true Artemis who can bring life from the dead. Jesus sees our womb as a potential tomb that we can let ourselves be lulled into a life of inactivity. If we're not careful, we can be anesthetized into apathy. 
And if we're at all like those in Sardis, high on that hill with a little wealth and well-being, a little safety and security, a little arrogance and attitude, then our God becomes smaller as we become bigger. If we're so busy with life, if we're absorbed with ourselves, our own cares and concerns in our own little world, it can be a kind of slumber, a kind of sleepwalking through life. Does it look like I know what I'm doing? Our preferences and our privilege can shroud the goodness of the gospel. If we're not careful, the gospel can become that warm blanket under which we hide instead of being the power to step out into the real world of spiritual sacrifice. And so here's the point. Here's what Jesus says to the church in Sardis, and here's what Jesus is saying to us today. Jesus wants his church, Jesus wants Good Shepherd to wake up to the wild and the wonderful work of God in our midst. Jesus wants us to stop playing church, like we heard from Matthew 23 a few moments ago. Jesus will go on to criticize those religious leaders. He'll say, you are whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but spiritually asleep on the inside. Jesus will go on to tell those religious leaders and teachers of the law that you you cover over land and sea. You go halfway around the world to make a convert, and it's true he said this. Once you make that convert, they are twice as much a son of hell as you are. Jesus said this. Jesus said, you're like a brood of vipers. See, Jesus looks at the religious leaders of the first century and he says, quit playing church. Quit putting on a good show, being greeted as rabbi and standing in the places of honor. Quit leaning on your reputation and realize the reality. Does Jesus have a word for us this morning as well? Does Jesus want us to wake up to the wild and the wonderful work of God and not just go through the motions? Three different times in just these six verses, Jesus uses the word onoma. Let me hear you say onoma. 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 It's a Greek word that literally means name. Now, it's onoma that Jesus will acknowledge before his father and the angels. I will acknowledge that name, that onoma, before the father and his angels. It's onoma that Jesus will never blot out in that book of life. Like all those ancient towns who kept a record of their citizens at the city gates, Anoma. And in the very first verse, we might have missed it, but it's the same word. It's Onoma that's translated as reputation. Carries the connotations of someone's character. Jesus says, your name is alive, but you are dead. You are asleep. Your name is alive, Christian church. But Sardis, you're... You're going through the motions. You're relying on your reputation instead of your reality. In 1813, a battle between the United States and the British navies erupted on Lake Erie. This was part of the 1812 war. Commander Oliver Perry once summarized one aspect of the battle with a penciled note on the back of an envelope that he sent to his Superior. Perhaps you've heard this phrase before. That little scrawled note on the back of the envelope read, We have met the enemy, and they are ours. See, that's the issue in Sardis. Other churches had these external threats. Jezebel in Thyatira. 
the Nicolaitans in Pergamum, all those wicked people in Ephesus. But in Sardis, the problem was not their doctrine. The problem was not idolatry. The enemy that they met was themselves. Is there a word for us here too? We have our doctrine, and we have our worship, and as good Presbyterians, it's done decently and in order. Amen? (laughs) But as good Presbyterians have the challenges of the past two years exacerbated our tendency as the frozen chosen. You know the line. Every Easter, charismatics still shout amen, and Baptists still dance, and Presbyterians nod their head in silence. Mm -hmm. Maybe we don't have Sardis' arrogance or attitude. But what about apathy? Have we been anesthetized into apathy? And have the challenges of the past two years prompted us to think of the gospel, the good news, as the covers under which we can hide, rather than the power through which we can go out and be God's people in the world. Friends, Jesus wants us to wake up to the wild and the wonderful work of God, not simply to be a Christian for an hour in a sanctuary or an hour in a small group, Jesus wants us to wake up to the wild and the wonderful work of God. This is the same work of Jesus that clothes us in white. This is the same work of Jesus that clothes us in white like Cassie's wedding dress 14 years ago. That same wild and wonderful work of God sends us into the world, not merely receiving, but remembering and repenting. We do not need a new sermon. But we need to be renewed by the goodness of the gospel the one that meets us right where we're at, with messy hair and bad breath under the covers, but a gospel that does not allow us to remain there. May we continue to be, and even more so become, a church that shakes off the covers of apathy and instead chooses active engagement for God's work in the world. May we continue to be, and even more so become, a church that purposely engages spiritual questions with those who have yet to come to know him. May we be a church that diligently searches through the scriptures, allowing God's word to guide our thoughts, to correct us where we're wrong, to comfort us where we are grieving. May we continue to be a church that works for justice in the world, instead of following the example of the world around us that merely points the finger at those who are to blame. May we be a church that worships joyfully for all that God has done for us in Jesus, clothing us in garments white as snow, that as we wake up from our beds, we are dressed in white, the symbol of the purity of Jesus, of victory in Jesus, and the simplicity of of Jesus. We need not run around like all those in Sardis, searching after the perfect purple garment to wear to show how we've got it all together. May we simply rely on that white garment, purity through Jesus, victory in Jesus, and simplicity of Jesus. May we be a church that continues to be and even more so become 
those who recognize we were once enemies of God. But we have been reconciled, and we have been given the message of reconciliation. That we are to remember what we've received and to repent. That in him we are given a new name that will remain in his book of life. And so, Father, would you help us to see the ways that we can fall into the temptation of Sardis. The ways that we can fall into the temptation of relying upon our programs and personalities. We can rely on staying busy, but not making progress. Would you convict us where we have become apathetic instead of actively engaged in your work in the world? Jesus, as you speak to that church in Sardis, referencing the seven spirits, would you open our eyes to the role of your spirit in each of our lives? That we would anew commit ourselves to hearing, to listening, and to discerning the voice of your spirit who leads and guides your church. Clothe us in white, we pray. Not because of anything that we have done after we've woken up, not because of any identity that we can put on to try to earn your love. Clothe us in white because of Jesus. The one who came to point to the good news of your kingdom. Who died in our place when we couldn't fulfill your call upon our lives. And who was raised again to the, with new life, that same new life that he gives us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.